Nothing's more adorable than a newborn baby. They slobber all the time. They have those little bubbles, you know, that come up on their lips. They uh, belch all the time. They even spit up, you know, constantly spitting up. And yet people want nothing more but to snuggle with them and to hold them and to be around them because they bring so much joy and so much delight into the home and into our lives. They're such a wonderful sight. But it would have really heartbreaking effect if a 40-year-old acted like that. It wouldn't be joyous at all. It wouldn't be anything cute at all. It would be lamentable. It would be tragic. I mean, for a baby to act like a baby is wonderful and precious, but for an adult to act like a baby, well, there's nothing desirous about that at all, and it certainly isn't noble. As we said, it's lamentable. This is the lament that Paul has for the Corinthian church as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning, entering into this chapter, because Paul writes to these Corinthians in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 3, saying, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. This was a sad state of the church at Corinth, as Paul writes to them. They were spiritual infants. They were immature. They were spiritually childish. They were spiritually underdeveloped. Now, this would have been shocking to them because they essentially had the opposite view of themselves. If you were to ask them where they stood they were more likely to tell you how advanced they were, how wise they were, how astute they were, how strong they were. As a matter of fact, this is essentially the way they describe themselves. Paul sort of contrasted over in chapter 4. In verse 10, he sort of sarcastically contrasts their view of themselves with the common view of the apostles. So we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. I mean, this is the way they would characterize themselves. They would go around in sort of a spiritual arrogance. As a matter of fact, back in chapter uh, in chapter 4 back in verse 6, he actually rebukes them for being puffed up against one another. In chapter 5, he rebukes them again for their arrogance. Chapter 8, he quotes their mantra Oh, we all have knowledge. We all have knowledge. And yet they were puffed up. Even in chapter 13, again, the famous love chapter, he begins that with reference again to their own evaluation of themselves. We, we have all knowledge and we understand all mysteries. This is their self-evaluation. This is the way they sort of patted themselves on the back. So it's safe to say that this would have been a shock for them. For Paul now to describe them as infantile, to describe them as immature, to say that he had to address them that way. But this is exactly what he said he had to do. In fact, he had to feed them as infants. You see in verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready. For you're still of the flesh, for while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only 
in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So Paul is confronting a stubborn immaturity among this congregation. A stubborn immaturity among these people. An ongoing contentment with a level of spirituality, or might even say an ongoing deception, self-deception with their own level of spirituality. And he's trying to break through that and move them on to a place of maturity. A contentment with the ongoing spiritual immaturity of their lives and the evidences that come from it. And so he's presenting for us here in the first few verses of chapter 3, sort of a manual towards spiritual maturity. A manual on spiritual maturity that's going to outline for us a few basic lessons on spiritual maturity that every one of us need to grasp if we ourselves are going to ever grow beyond the state that the Corinthian church found themselves in. This manual begins with a, a lesson in verses 1 and 2, which is sort of outlining the source of immaturity, which is the flesh. The flesh. Paul uses a familiar contrast in these couple of verses. He says, I, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. This is pretty common if you understand Paul's writings. You've seen this before. This contrast between the spiritual and the fleshly. And don't confuse this, because back in chapter 2, he had made a contrast between the spiritual and the natural. You remember in verse 14 of chapter 2, there was a spiritual man, there was a natural man. And that was a contrast between a believer and an unbeliever. Someone who has the spirit and someone who doesn't have the spirit. Someone who has been born again, someone who hasn't been born again. The contrast between the spiritual and the natural back then was the contrast between someone who had been transformed by God so that now the word of God and spiritual things make sense to them. They can discern them. They can properly digest them. Versus the natural man who hears things from God's word and it doesn't make sense to him. He's around spiritual people. He sees spiritual truth. He, he's surrounded by spiritual realities and it just he doesn't discern it. That's the contrast he made back in chapter 2, but this is different. The spiritual versus the fleshly here, this is different. This is a reference to Christians. In fact, Paul calls them brothers in verse 1. But even being Christians, there's the constant threat in your life that even having the Spirit and even being a Christian, you may still walk according to the flesh. You may still be characterized by the flesh. This is probably most clearly spelled out in Galatians chapter 5, where Paul writes to the Galatians. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me at Galatians chapter 5 for just a moment. Remember, we were in this book not too long ago, and looking at this in verse 16, I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now Paul will go on to clarify to them down in verse 21 that if your whole life is characterized by nothing but fleshliness like that, then don't be deceived. You may not be a believer. 
that, that you may actually be one of those natural men. You may actually be one of those natural women, one of those unborn again people. You may actually be an unbeliever. But even being that as it is, the fact that there's a clear distinction between natural and spiritual people, even among spiritual people, there is the temptation, there's the risk that even being born again, we can still walk by the Spirit at times. Now you remember when we went through this, we basically defined what it is to walk by the flesh. The flesh is basically re referencing that whole part of your life that is lived apart from the reality of God. It's the whole part of your life, whether the material or the immaterial. Everything in your life that is lived apart from the reality of God. It is, in other words, living as if God didn't exist. In the things that you own, in the things that you do, in the things that you feel, in the things that you value. That's what, that's what Paul means when he talks about the flesh. It's living life day after day as if God didn't exist. And this is the temptation that comes into our lives. Walking in the flesh, setting your mind on the things of the flesh. Remember, this is really how we ultimately define it, the way that Paul defines it in Romans chapter 8. The mind set on the spirit, uh, thinks about the things of the spirit, sets his mind on things above. The mind set on the flesh, sets his mind on things below. And this is walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. And Paul basically equates this kind of fleshly thinking, this kind of worldly thinking, this kind of, this kind of temporal thinking with the spiritually immature. Those who have basically contented themselves to be fed only with spiritual milk. Because honestly, their appetite is more for the things of the world. They have more of an appetite for worldly mindsets. They're like a child, like any child, who lives only for the moment. They think about only today. You know, uh, three weeks for a child is an eternity in their minds. You tell them, yeah, I ordered something for my daughter and uh, ordered it with, uh, with a fast delivery and told her I was so excited. I said, yeah, it'll be here in two days. Two days? She wondered how she'd survive. I mean, they, 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 they basically, the Corinthians were living this way. They were living their lives with this childish mentality, constantly being amused by the moment, constantly craving after what was, you know, immediately gratifying and not living beyond that. That's never God's intention. God never desires people to live in spiritual immaturity. God never praises spiritual shallowness, spiritual superficiality. And people in churches often boast that way. They will boast of their, their ignorance and their simplicity. You know, all I know is, you know, God so loved the world. That's all I need to know. I don't know much, but I know, you know, that God gave His only Son... I've heard it through the years, people sort of patting themselves on the back because of their simplicity. 
Well, that's not God's desire. That's not God's desire. God's desire is that we mature. His desire is that we grow. His desire is that we feed ourselves on spiritual meat. In fact, on your way back to 1 Corinthians 3, you can stop in, verse, in chapter 14 and just look with me for a moment at verse 20. Paul will later come back to these guys and say, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. God's never put a premium on spiritual immaturity because he understands, as Paul understood, the spiritual immaturity leads to fleshliness, or I should say it's at least fed by fleshliness. It's the source of it. In evil, in malice, in all of these things, you can be babes, you can be infants, you can have a sort of innocence about you, but when it comes to your thinking... God commands that you grow in doctrine, that you grow in maturity. This is exactly why God gives pastors and teachers to the church. To, not to soothe you in your infancy, but to provide you with the kind of meaty food so that you can attain the stature of maturity that you're supposed to have. In fact, look with me at Ephesians, just to turn to perhaps another place that illustrates this well. In verse 11, it says that God gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To hold your hand at the hospital, to gather together with you at your potluck, to be your sort of uh, stand-up entertainment no, he gave them in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is exactly why God gave teachers. This is exactly why God ordained the roles of pastors. To produce spiritual development. You know, there's some people who are afraid of this. There are some people who are afraid of pastors who are going to go too deep and spend too long talking about too much doctrine and too much theology, trying to expand people's understanding of God and deepen their devotion to Christ, trying to, to enrich their understanding of the cross and all of its implications. There are people who are afraid of being too thorough in their teaching. Unfortunately, this is where the Corinthians were. Paul said, I was forced to feed you over and over again milk. 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 Because that's all you take. That's all you would take. He could have delivered up meaty and juicy truth. But because they had no appetite for it, he knew they would reject it. Because their minds were still filled with the flesh. Still filled with the flesh. 
It's interesting, if you're there in Ephesians 4, look at verse 14. The result of this kind of maturity from sound doctrine and teaching is not just the maturity in the fullness of Christ, but Paul says, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. We're no longer to be children, no longer to be tossed to and fro, no longer to be gullible, no longer to be naive, no longer to be unstable, he says. But we're to grow up into this maturity, which he defines back in verse 13 as the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. This is God's design. God's design is to give you pastors and teachers and leaders and, and people who can guide you out of your spiritual maturity, out of your worldliness, out of your, your temporal mindset, into a place of maturity, into a place of growth, into a place of progress, into a place of heavenly mindedness, into an eternal mindset, into the maturity of Christ. This is what God desires. This is what every church ought to be about. you have your Bibles, flip me over to James chapter 3, another classic statement to this effect. James says, who is wise and understanding among you? James 3, verse 13. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. See, this is what Paul is telling these Corinthians. This is what he's telling them. You have set your mind on earthliness. You set your mind on worldliness. You set your mind on fleshliness. You have let your mind be governed by that which is from below. That which is governed by selfish ambition, by jealousy, by unspiritual things, by earthly things. And not by that wisdom which comes down from above, which he says, which James says is peaceable and gentle and open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere, full of righteousness, all of those things. So consequently, this church that had given themselves over to fleshliness had never progressed any further spiritually. Now, this has profound implications. Profound implication regarding the church, right? Paul says one of the fruits of the church is to teach this kind of doctrine, to teach this kind of truth in order to grow this kind of single-minded unity around the scripture, around the gospel, around the Savior, to achieve a like-mindedness in terms of scripture. 
In fact, over, over in 1 Corinthians 1.10, remember, Paul said that he wanted them to all have the same mind and the same way of thinking. Another way to say this is that disunity is the byproduct of doctrinal ignorance. It's the byproduct of spiritually immature thinking. Which is sort of Paul's second lesson if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the second place he takes us, which is the sign of immaturity. Its source is their fleshliness. Its sign is their conflict. The sign of immaturity. The evidence of it is their conflict. He says in verse 3, You're still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? Behaving only in a human way. I mean, isn't this evidence that you're thinking in a human way? You're thinking in an earthly way? You're thinking in a, in a way that is just of this world? Isn't this evidence of it? This conflict, this jealousy, this strife among you? I mean, you, you see it. We saw it in, in, in what we read from James. When James says that when you set your mind on that as earthly and spirit, unspiritual and demonic, what's the result of it? He says, jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, all these things. Even over in Galatians, whenever we looked at the contrast between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit and Paul eventually comes around to talk about what are the deeds that give evidence of this fleshliness he begins by saying that it is immorality sexual immorality and sensuality but then he immediately progresses on to talk about enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy in fact on balance if you were to ask the apostle Paul what is the evidence of fleshliness, he may give a nod to sensuality, but it seems to me that he would put the primary emphasis on divisions, disunity, factions, enmity, strife. Even James says that the byproduct of this, of this heavenly thinking, he says in James 3.18, is a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace among those who make peace, he says. The sign of spiritual immaturity, then, is a life that's filled with conflict. A life of irreconciled relationships. A life of broken friendships. These are the evidences of fleshly, immature believers. You may proclaim, we have knowledge, we have knowledge. We have doctrine, we have theology. You can say all those things if you want. But if your life, and your home, or your church, is filled with strife and jealousy and selfishness, you're getting evidence of what? Spiritual immaturity. You're giving evidence of a mind that is still governed by the flesh. No matter how much doctrine you have. 
By the way, these Corinthians weren't short on doctrine. They had some of the best teachers of the world. Their church was planted by the Apostle Paul. He was their pastor for at least a year, year and a half, maybe two years. And then after him came one that was renowned in all quarters of the church, Apollos, a man mighty in the scriptures. And apparently from chapter 1, verse 12, even Peter ministered there for a while because there were some people who had sat under his teaching. These people weren't short on teaching. But what they had actually done is they had found a way to bring their own selfish ambitions, their own fleshly ways of thinking and dress them in religious language in the culture of the church so that they could take as banners the names of their teachers as a way to pursue their own self-glory. That's what Paul says in verse 4. When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? It doesn't matter if you want to put a religious label above your conflicts. It doesn't matter if you want to add some, some sort of uh, uh, Christian factionalism. If your life is still governed by this selfish ambition and this jealousy and this discord, you can assign all the religious labels you want, but you are still operating, he says, by the same principles of the flesh, the same principles of the world. Still your pride Still your self-glory. These divisions didn't come from the teachers. As a matter of fact, Paul says later on, he wants to send Apollos back to them. He's not jealous of Apollos. But as we saw over in chapter 4, verse 6, they were using these men and their, their names as sort of labels to puff themselves up against each other. Still governed by the flesh. Jealousy. Strife. Enmity. It makes its way into your home. It makes its way into your marriage. It makes its way into the relationship between parents and children. It makes its way into boardrooms, into businesses all across this world. I mean, it just is the evidence of fleshly thinking. But what a tragedy when it makes its way into the church into Christian homes. When people who believe somehow that they've got a spiritual immaturity still operate by the same principles that rip apart homes and rip apart businesses and rip apart relationships. And you find that happening in the church. But unfortunately, we can all give testimony to it, can't we? We all have seen it with great sadness. I remember I was teaching conflict resolution in Italy and I was kind of going along and I gave some illustrations of some things I had seen both personally or heard about, something like that. And, and there came a point where through the translator, the Italians stopped me. And they're like, oh, that's nothing. And then they got into this, this row of telling stories, you know, of what they, and it was just, you know, church fights, people throwing punches at church meetings. One case... Two guys wrapping their arms around one another, wrestling and literally falling out the front door of the church, onto the sidewalk, out in front, in front of the world, brawling in the name of Christ. I suddenly wonder if I was qualified anymore to really teach these guys. I don't know that I could match any of that stuff. But all over the globe, this is a blight on the name of Christ. 
in churches, in individuals, in homes. This disunity, this conflict, it is symptomatic, unfortunately, of spiritual immaturity. God gave teachers for the building up the body of Christ so that they all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. God gave teachers to grow you spiritually in your understanding of doctrine, your understanding of the cross, your understanding of who God is, the way God works, your understanding of, of God's plans, God's programs. He gave all that in order to feed you spiritual meat so that you were no longer tossed here and there like little children, so that you were no longer wrapped up in the same kind of fleshly conflicts, so that you were no longer governed by all of those same selfish ambitions, so that you were no longer uh, masquerading in the name of Christ that same sort of fleshly, immature thinking. God gave all of this so that you would finally grow up in maturity into exactly what God intends every Christian to be. Because this kind of conflict, this kind of immaturity, it has no place in the church. It has no place in your life. It has no place in your home. It has no place anywhere where those who are heavenly minded live. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those who are those who are walking according to the Spirit. So the answer isn't uh, some pastor who's going to soothe you in your infancy. And the answer isn't some shallow Christian devotion dispensed to you in 15 minutes a week. Some feel-good music. Some soothing environment. Smoke and mirrors and all that other stuff. The answer to, to your deepest need for for unity in your church, unity in your home, unity uh, uh, with those that you're around, your deepest need for spiritual maturity, your growth, your stability. The answer for all of that is someone who will dispense to you the kind of spiritual food that's going to accomplish that kind of purpose in your life. The answer is someone who's going to feed you with sound doctrine and bring you to the place of mature understanding. Now, all this is sort of summarized a bit at the end. We don't have time to really do anything but just sort of introduce this today, but really the solution can be summarized with this immaturity. That's the glory of God. An all-out pursuit, not of the things of this world, but the things of God. And I can't, we're not going to go into detail, but I just want to introduce this to you today because it sort of rounds out this picture on spiritual maturity. Because what was happening in this church at Corinth is these people were taking all of this worldly mindset, all of this, all of this fleshly mindset, all this earthly mindset, and they were bringing it into the church under the label of Christianity, but viewing everything in an earthly way. In an earthly way. This is the way it unfolds. Paul says in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Why does he have to say that? Why does he have to say that? Because obviously, they either didn't believe it, or they weren't acknowledging it. See, they were thinking that somehow, some way, it was them, or it was their teacher, or it was their faction, or it was their approach, or it was their scheme, or it was whatever that brought the growth. They were beginning to view the church and the ministry and everything that was taking place through this worldly mindset, through this fleshly mindset, so that as things were accomplished, as things were done, as God was doing something among them, they were giving credit to men. They were giving credit to their camp, to their group, to their teacher, to their faction, to their strategy, or whatever it might be. They were importing worldliness into the church, viewing it from simply an earthly mindset. Look, Paul says this, that people have these different roles. Apollos watered, I planted. Some people, by extension, till the soil. Some people reap. But he says at the end of the day, it's God who gives the growth. It's God who does it. It wasn't that person that led you to Christ It wasn't their fancy presentation. It wasn't their ability to reason. It wasn't their whatever, their personality, their liveliness, or any of that. If you came to Christ, it was God. He's the one that caused it to happen. He's the one who bore that faith in you. He's the one that took your blind eyes and caused you to see. He's the one who called you when you were lying dead spiritually and raised you to new life. He's the one who gave you that faith. In fact, it's an interesting word there in verse 5. Paul, he says, what is a Paul? Paulus, what is Paul? We're servants. The word is diakonoi, same word we get deacon, but basically just means a, an unskilled worker or it came to be associated with a, with a table waiter. And what he's basically saying to them is, look, we, we didn't make the food. We didn't, we didn't uh, you know, cook this up. We're not the chef. All we did was bring it and set it before you. It would be really, really rude for you to go to someone's house and uh, some precious mom put so much labor into making some meal and then her husband comes in and grabs a plate and sets it in front of you and you give him all the praise. Right? I mean, you know where the work was. You know who to thank. Apparently these Corinthians, if they knew it, they weren't doing it. See, this is really what is the antidote, the solution, the cure for all this spiritual immaturity is getting your mind out of this world and getting it back on God. Getting it back off of your confidence in your own power, your own schemes, your own work, and putting it back on God. 
getting your mind off your own glory and your own accolades and your own accomplishments and putting it back on God. Now, I never understood when I was on the mission field, we had these people that were living outside of the country where we worked. They were, they were considered missionaries, but they never came to where we were. And their job, their job was to just sort of put all these ingredients in some sort of bowl, mix it all up, and out of that was supposed to come this movement, this church planting movement. You know, kind of add in a little bit of a radio ministry, and they add in a little bit of literature ministry, and they kind of coordinate a couple short-term trips, and they kind of get all these other things kind of together. And there was actually a there was actually studies, and there were formulas as if somehow you can program that kind of work from God. They they never actually showed up and preached to the people. I don't know how you consider yourself a missionary. I don't know how you consider yourself a pastor. I don't know how you consider yourself a minister if all you're doing is exercising your techniques, your strategy, instead of employing the Lord's methods. But this is really the antidote. This is really where God wants you to be. He wants you and your mind to be governed by heavenly realities. And primarily his glory. This is the antidote to spiritual immaturity. It's the antidote to conflict. It's the antidote to, 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 to disunity. You take a married couple, you get their minds off of themselves and their own goals, you get their minds back on the glory, glory of God and their situation, the conflict can be resolved. This is exactly what God desires for every. Christian, every church, every ministry, this kind of maturity. Let's uh, stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful and thankful to you. We understand certainly the mess and the disorder of this world, we see the upheaval of selfishness and worldliness and fleshliness. We see it in lives, we see it in relationships, we see it at work, we see it at home. And oh Lord, unfortunately, sometimes we see it in the church. It doesn't honor you, it doesn't glorify you. And it's not necessary. Lord, if we will commit ourselves, as you call us to, to feeding ourselves spiritually, to giving ourselves the spiritual meat that's necessary, if you will give us leaders and teachers who will fill our hearts and minds week after week with sound doctrine, we trust that you can bring us to the point of maturity. You can raise our hearts and minds off of this world. You can set us on things above. We pray that you would do that. Give us growth. Give us progress. Give us maturity so that we can live for your glory. And it's to that end and for that purpose that we pray. In Christ's name.